welcome to another episode of Econo Politics. Hi, I'm Fabrizio Chagas Bastos in Sao Paulo, and I'll be your co-host for today's show. And I'm Joseph Marx in Los Angeles. Econo Politics is the official podcast of LASA's Economics and Politics section, where we engage section members, international practitioners, and new voices from the region. Today's guest here at Econo Politics is Angelica Redberg. Angelica is Professor of Political Science at the University of Los Andes in Bogota, Colombia, where she leads the research program on armed conflict and peace building. She has also served as a negotiator for the Colombian government in the peace talks with the Ejército de Liberación Nacional, the ELN. Welcome, Angelica. We're delighted to have you here on EconoPolitics. Let's begin with your personal assessment of the current situation of the peace deal. Thank you, Fabricio and Jose, for this invitation. It's it's wonderful to have this opportunity to discuss this this uh, this peace agreement that, that Colombia has been developing for over for, for the past four years. Uh, I would say that a general uh, uh, assertion might be we're in in, in peace in muddling through mode. Uh, we are not implementing the peace agreement by the book. Uh, there's lots of negotiation going on uh, among institutions and groups of social of society that were not involved in the design of the agreement, but who have a big stake in defining what the further course of the agreement will be, which is natural. I mean, the peace negotiations are usually conducted in a very limited uh, space with specific actors, and once you put that into the arms of, of society at large, of course, you will face these kinds of uh, discussions. Uh, but what that has meant specifically is that, of course, the agreement has not been implemented, as I said, by the book, nor uh, uh, with, the, with the pace or with the speed that many might have wanted, uh, which means that you'll find uh, sectors within society that are not satisfied with the content and with the pace of implementation. Uh, however, uh, from from a comparative from from a comparative perspective, I would say that uh, in comparison with other countries, Colombia is actually doing quite well uh, because uh, the former guerrilla FARC has turned into a political party. It is learning legislative tactics and politics and strategy. Uh, most of the former combatants have uh, completed their. Uh, transformation into civilians and are now working on several productive projects and are leading civilian lives, have built families, have uh, resumed studies in case they didn't have any. Uh, they're just, just sort of following the path towards political and civilian re reincorporation. Uh, a very ambitious transitional justice structure is in place, including a truth commission and a special peace jurisdiction, which is beginning to show results. So I would say that um, in, in brief, uh, the peace agreement uh, has, um, has developed inertia. Uh, it, is, it is not uh, supported by everybody across society. There's sectors that openly oppose the agreement, uh, but none of this opposition will in my view, lead to any uh, profound restructuring in the short or medium or even long term. It's great, Angelica. Thank you. We need to start unpacking all those features of the agreement you've just presented. To move on to the first point, uh, do you agree that the Duke government seems to strongly criticize the peace deal as a danger to the country's security 
and legality, whereas at the same time, it defends aspects of the deal internationally. So I think this is the first feature we should explore because there's a duality. So it, the, this genus phase of, towards international, everything's going well. Uh, we're doing fairly well, but uh, inside we have all these divisions and coming from the government or being, being stimulated by the government. I would say that uh, the Colombian government is really facing several constraints. Uh, and one important one, which explains perhaps some of what you just said, has to do with the role of the party that brought the, govern the Duque government to power. It was the party that supported the no in the referendum, which has been very critical, especially of several transitional justice aspects of the agreement, uh, which is the one that, called, that still calls the former combatants terrorists and, 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 and child rapists, so really tries to stir, to, to, to stir up uh, many of the criticisms and fears that people hold uh, regarding FARC, which is the name of this guerrilla organization for several years. So, and, and this is in part due to the fact that this has been electorally quite uh, useful uh, because that way they've been able to both win the no and then the presidency, and then they've also been able to uh, uh, con con sort of sort of continue this 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 uh, electoral advantage through the years, including congressional uh, elections of last year. So so that has to be understood in order to explain why the government domestically insists on its criticism of the agreement, at least. Uh, in their public statements. If you look at their actions, uh, you will see that they are implementing most of what has been agreed. Can I ask you to give us some examples of how, how this is happening now? So one thing is the speech, the other thing is the real work. Exactly. So, so for instance, there is a, there's a special counsel, often a special counselor, uh, in charge of the so-called, uh, he used to be the peace commissioner, but now he's in charge of the commission for stabilization, which is some, some of the euphemisms that are being used in order to avoid this very latent uh, con concept, which is peace, because that's, that brings an association with the former government and with the FARC, so they call it stabilization, but they are in charge of all the demobilized fighters, they have been overseeing uh, the disbursement of funds to uh, facilitate these fighters' uh, integration into the pension system, into the health system, uh, to formalize education, to bring to them the kinds of credits they needed to uh, develop some of the productive projects. And that's, that's the Duque government that's, that's fulfilling this promise. In addition to that, they've launched several attacks against uh, the transitional justice system, but have not been successful, which is one thing that I think is worth underscoring, which is that in, in contrast with other times in Colombian history, Colombian institutions are really uh, have, have really made progress towards checks and balances and separation of powers so courts can actually stop the president from interfering with transitional justice. Uh, the Congress has also been able to negotiate. So I think that's, that, that, that adds to the complexity of the domestic picture, which uh, would suggest to you in terms of the public discourse that the government is not invested in implement implementing, but if you look at the actions, they have neither been able to actually stop implementation, nor have they uh, failed to implement those aspects which they have underscored are really important, which is to stay by the demobilized fighters, which they have done. Uh, now, internationally speaking, um, uh, there's, as I, I mean, 
this is interesting because the international community during the negotiation was pretty much uh, set apart. I mean, it, it's the, the the mantra that 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 that. Um, uh, that 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 guided the negotiation was this is the Colombian process for Colombians. So that was a very strong statement to the UN, to other countries, saying you know don't don't interfere with this. We will not do this by mediation. We'll do this on our own. Uh, uh, so of course they did play some role facilitating and and providing funds. But overall this was a pretty much Colombian undertaking and uh, uh, enterprise. So but. but but in the aftermath of the signature, I think the international community has really gained presence uh, and is now one of the main sources, not necessarily of funding. They, they don't contribute huge amounts of money, but in terms of international uh, legitimacy awarded to this agreement. Uh, uh, and in that sense, I think the, the government is very much aware of the need to address both its domestic audience as well as its international audience. And, and therefore, you might hear these sometimes conflicting versions of, of, of what, the, what the agreement is, is going through. A concrete example of how the international community played a role in, in the Colombian process is um, Santos won a Nobel Prize, a peace Nobel Prize, to support was a clear political message. I remember I was teaching it that day and the students asked me, so please, could you stop the class to watch the ceremony? So it was very emotional for Colombians, and I think it was clear for the entire world saying, look, we're looking at you, please do it well. So to unpack a bit more this domestic side of the peace agreement, um, two days ago, I saw news on El Espectador saying that the government has recently submitted a proposed budget to Congress, which includes, among other items, a 30% rejection in funding to um, for the Justicia Especial para la Paz. So um, what are the, the political and economic consequences of such a cut on the budget? So um, one aspect, let, let's, let's, let's give the several readings. One reading has to do with realistic uh, restrictions and the availability of funds to conduct and promote pretty much any public policy right now in Colombia that has been really hard hit by the pandemic as many other countries in the world uh, where, where the, the overall budget has shrunk and where, for instance, there are new sectors really seeking attention. And I would just call your attention to uh, the over one and one and a half million Venezuelans that have uh, you know, uh, uh, migrated to Colombia and who's, who's, who have been received quite generously, both in legal terms as well as in economic terms, but of course, strain uh, national budgets in some in some in some areas. So 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 just just to say, you know, if even even the government that's in favor of the agreement might have to introduce a reduction in the budget. Uh, however, of course, this can have some political reading, and that has to do with uh, first of all the fact that the party that brought the Duque government to power has been critical, especially of transitional justice throughout. Uh, and this would be sort of a renewed attempt to limit their impact. Um, but then also, I would I would I would add a reading, and and, and here here's here's Angelica, the political scientist by heart and by training, which is you know elections are coming up. Uh, so this so even if this doesn't go through Congress, um, uh, just 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 presenting yourself to your electorate as someone who keeps feeling that this transitional justice system gave away too much power 
uh, outside the ordinary justice institutions, I think pays up, will pay off for 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 this party. So um, I will I will just I will just probably add these two visions to to the discussion. Angelica, you you touched on this uh, briefly, um, but I wonder how important is the support of the international community at this stage? What is the role of the international community? But what is being done? What should perhaps be done? Um, on the one hand, there's strong support apparently on the part of the EU, the European Union. On the other hand, uh, under this administration, uh, great criticism. Um, so I, I wonder at this stage, what is the role and the level of support on the part of the international community? And I can't help but to ask you, given uh, an upcoming possible change of the US administration, how will that, what is, what is expected from that? Thank you, Jose. Um, so, so this is fascinating, actually, because as I mentioned during the negotiation itself, uh, previous to the negotiation, pretty much, pretty most of the international cooperation agencies dealing with peace matters had been pretty much on their way out of Colombia, because Colombia had gained a very significant role as middle-income economy as a country that was sort of putting a, a just just getting just just sort of, sort of it, it was it was being able to control its its internal security situation militarily but it was able to sort of reduce uh indicators related to violence so many just thought that would not be negotiations and that basic basically uh, uh the colombian conflict would, would be resolved by by mutual fatigue. Uh, so they were on their way out. And then suddenly uh, it was announced that negotiations would begin, would be, would begin between FARC and the Santos government. Uh, and at that point, they just had to turn around and sort of reopen their offices and re revise their, their budgets. Uh, however, as I said earlier, uh, during the negotiation itself, they were pretty much held back. Uh, they were allowed to sort of uh, exert influence on the fringes. They were included in very specific tasks, such as the UN overseeing the process of the, the, the weapon handover, uh, the, the control of, of, of the bunkers where, where, the, where the weapons are currently held, the destruction of mines. So these were very specific tasks. But for instance, one consequence of the referendum was to uh, uh, eliminate the option of having international justices and international actually uh, 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 jurors in, among the special peace jurisdictions. So there was a very strong sort of statement of local ownership of, over the process throughout the negotiation and then later in implementation. However, as you, as you mentioned as well, it is after the negotiation was signed and especially after the victory of the no that the international community has turned sort of into into a uh, a moral standard for a moral a moral uh, voice to keep this agreement alive and to reinstate their commitments to the process uh, this is not translated in huge amounts of money um, this will still be a piece that will be mainly funded by Colombians for Colombians and therefore it will, it will look as beautiful or as ugly as we Colombians are able to build it uh, but, but the contribution has been more focalized in certain aspects in certain areas as I mentioned uh, has been reduced overall but the, the, the contribution I would say has been more on the side on, on the political side to keep this on the agenda to, to, to make to make sure that, that, that no one gives up sort of on this on this agreement um, 
You mentioned the EU, which has been a crucial partner, uh, but the US has been very important too. Just yesterday, I was going over uh, uh, USAID's contribution, and it turns out that USAID is the main contributor to the Colombian Truth Commission, Truth Commission which is fascinating to me. I mean, that, that shows that shows you the kind of, uh, uh, I don't know how to call them, I guess, schizophrenic realities you can have in these in these processes where you don't know where the funds come from to, to do things that politically might sound contrary to the desires of whoever is producing the money, but, but this is one of the realities of Colombia right now. The question as to what, what, uh, what different, uh, what, what, what each of the possible presidents of the U.S. Uh, will mean for Colombia uh, is hotly debated. Of course, uh, uh, we, we, we keep to be, I mean, we, we tend to be fascinated with our own uh, belly buttons and think that Colombia is so important because of the drug trade or because of its role in, 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 in regional security. In fact, of course, Colombia is just one more Latin American country uh, for the U.S. It is not even one of the most important ones. Mexico is much more important. Brazil is. Uh, so, so I don't think that there will be fundamental shifts in the way the U.S. Uh, engages its 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 attitude or its or its actions regarding the peace process. I think the only crucial uh, Colombia can play in, Colum in, in, in U.S. foreign policy towards Latin America is due to its being the neighbor of Venezuela. I think there is where there is a big expectation of, of Colombia continuing to play the role which, is, which it has so far, which is to sort of uh, exert pressure in favor of a, of a solution or a transformation, profound change in Venezuela. So um, what about the impact on popular support for the peace deal and the upcoming elections in 2022? You mentioned this previously, so could you unpack a bit more? Of course. Uh, so, so one of the interesting things about Colombia is that it has been a historic, and I mean for at least two decades, preference for a negotiated solution. This has been steady across regions, across uh, sectors of income, uh, gender, you name it. People in Colombia have always preferred a negotiated solution over a military outcome. However, when asked what they're willing to uh, uh, concede or what's the trade-off uh, in order to make a negotiation viable, um, we have seen in data, at least for the past 15 years, that people are very highly unwilling to make concessions, especially to FARC, uh, which was, uh, which had become uh, uh, very unpopular due to some of the high-profile kidnappings of the end of the 90s. Just be reminded that at the end of the 90s, there were around 500 soldiers and military officers kidnapped in the Colombian jungles. And in addition to that, there were around 3,000 civilians uh, kidnapped in that decade. So, so FARC was, had made itself unpopular for very uh, uh, good reasons. Uh, and this, this then feeds into this uh, idea that, yes, we want to negotiate, but we want peace for free. Um, to understand that peace costs something, for instance, opening up the political space to have the guerrilla turn into a political party or uh, provide them with some preferential treatment in terms of justice, which is the, which is the underlying logic of traditional justice, has been very difficult for the Colombian population to accept, or let's let's clarify, not the whole Colombian population, I, I should say. Most Colombians now, since the, the conflict intensity has decreased, really don't care much about FARC or about conflict. But those who do care are pretty evenly split between those who feel that 
a peace negotiation requires a trade-off and those who would just like to have a, a rendition. Uh, and this is something that, as I said at the beginning, the, the party in power still, party in presidential power still uses very efficacious, uh, very, 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 very wise, not wisely, very um, efficaciously. I don't, I'm not sure if that word exists, but it uses it quite well. Effectively. To, effectively. Thank you. <laughs> Jeez, I'm sorry. Please cut this. Um, um, this is, this is something that the party in power still uses quite effectively to uh, launch attacks against the, the, the peace agreement, against uh, everything or anything that reminds people of the previous government, which is not only considered uh, a government that, that handed the country over to FARC, which is of course not true, but which also was profoundly corrupt and which also created pretty much any other problem that you can name or list uh, in the process. So um, just long answer to a very precise question. I do feel that the party is not over yet with using the peace agreement to uh, recruit supporters and to enlist uh, or, to, or, to, or to mobilize their supporters. Uh, this will still be a topic in the upcoming elections. Uh, however, what I do feel is that some people or more people are getting fed up with this polarization, uh, have expressed an increasing fatigue uh, with what this has meant for peaceful, I guess, coexistence in Colombia and also what it has meant in terms of discussion of other public policy. So I don't think it's unlikely that the pendulum might go again in the other direction of a government that might be more open and more willing to discuss uh, the limitations of the agreement, but at the same time uh, to discuss the policy that will make it happen uh, or will just continue to consolidate the agreement in order for, for, for progress to be achieved and, and bring Colombia closer to becoming a more peaceful society. Great. Um, Angelica, perhaps you can give us an update on the situation um, of the, at, on the Colombian-Venezuelan border and also uh, the state of bilateral relations. Has it gotten worse? And is it just on, on standby, status quo? Has it improved in any respect? Unfortunately, no. Uh, unfortunately, uh, bilateral relations have been uh, very... Uh, uh, very, very belligerent uh, in, the, in the past two years, ever since Ivan Duque, President Ivan Duque, was one of the first governments in Latin America to recognize Juan Guaido as an interim president of uh, Venezuela in January 2019. I think, yeah, it was 20, 2019 when this happened. Uh, Colombia has also been a leader of the Grupo de Lima, which is a group of countries trying to promote a a transition within Venezuela. Uh, so, so, so communication between the two governments is very poor, which is of course a big problem for many issues. Among them, I would stress two. One has to do with the question, actually three. One has to do with the issue of migration. Uh, as we know, Venezuelans have been abandoning, have been leaving the country in in, in throes for many years now, especially young people with children seeking opportunity elsewhere on the continent. Uh, around 1.5 million Venezuelans are estimated to have reached Colombia and have, to, have decided to stay here. It has really strained public uh, finances. Uh, so far, the Colombian government, I think in comparison with other Latin American countries, has developed a quite generous approach by formalizing, for instance, uh, 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 
legally formalizing uh, babies born to these migrants so they can have access to, to the health system and to the educational system. Um, they have been provided with jobs in some cases. However, this, of course, as also has happened in other countries, has led to uh, xenophobic movements. For instance, all the social protests that that raged through Latin America at the end of last year, including Colombia, was very much uh, um, affected and tainted or tainted by this idea that Venezuelans were to be blamed for much of the urban crime and violence uh, that, that happened alongside with this, with this, with this, with these protests. So, it is a, it is a, it is a bitter sweet situation, I would say, for migrants in Colombia now. In addition, a second a second factor has to do with security. Colombian-Venezuelan borders are a breeding ground for criminal organizations. Uh, authorities on both sides have really lack capacity control uh, the activities of these criminal organizations, the drug trade and trade off illicit minerals flourishes in these areas, uh, in these border areas. So that's another problem where communication between governments is key and it's just not happening. And then the third aspect that I would like to add is the role of the pandemic, because of course uh, we have very little faith in the numbers of contagion and, and death that is coming out of Venezuela in relation to uh, COVID-19. Uh, and many of these migrants entering the country uh, are either fleeing from really uh, uh, shameful health conditions within their own country or are bringing the virus with them. So in addition to all the other problems that I mentioned, uh, border areas are also areas where there is high levels of contagion right now. Uh, so for all of these, as for all of these reasons, uh, the government should be talking. They're not doing it. Uh, and it's likely, and I don't. Let me play with, with John Maynard Keynes' famous book title. So what are the consequences, the economic consequences of the peace for Colombia? So you're an expert of business and the peace process. So let's listen to your thoughts on that. So this is fascinating because from a macroeconomic perspective, you cannot really see conflict in Colombia's numbers. Uh, for years, Colombia has outperformed other Latin American countries in terms of GDP growth. Uh, uh, and and, and, and in, in many, in many from, from the point of view of many aspects, Colombia is not your typical war-torn country. There has been uh, uh, and, and a formal, a growing formal economy uh, uh, for years. Uh, processes of regulation, of of of, of lending, of relation of, of relations among institutions have been strengthened throughout the years. Uh, and for many, Colombia is both in comparison with itself and with the region, uh, some some sort of darling uh, on the international arena, meaning that international investment has been flowing into the country. Um, it is a preferred partner for international uh, investments as well. Um, Colombia has been now included in the group of middle-income economies, which was in part, which was one of the things that I mentioned earlier as part of the reason why many in the international community just felt uh, they had no, they they no longer had any business trying to uh, to to assist Colombia in the solution of its of its internal uh, domestic violence problems. So on on the one hand, you have that. Uh, this has had a very specific uh, uh, implication for the Colombian business sector. First of all, the fact uh, it is it is true that Colombia is 80% urban, which means that in terms of who votes, who pays taxes, who 
really uh, uh, has the, really weighs in on public policy is mainly urban populations, uh, whereas rural populations, which is where the conflict has raged on, uh, weigh very little in terms of these aspects that I just mentioned. Um, that has that means again that that Colombian business has been able to flourish uh, in the past years. Uh, and this has been facilitated to the detriment, I would say, of course, to, to, the, to the integration of the integration of this rural population into the national economy. Uh, um, and, and, then, and then something that has added to that is the reality of reduced conflict intensity uh, over the past 15 years. And this is something that is important to be stressed, which makes Colombia different from other transitional countries as well, which is that um, it was very difficult to sell peace to the Colombian private sector because in a way the peace dividend here had already been absorbed, it had already been created by the improvements in security and by this flow of international money that came to the country even before the agreement was signed. Uh, I like to see, I like to look at this uh, as, as one version of, of Carolyn Paul's paradox of plenty, uh, which means that uh, when a country is faring well, I, would, I wouldn't say super, but well in comparison with, with other Latin American countries, uh, and is no longer really facing the consequences of extreme violence as we did in the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, it's much harder to sell to people the need to give up something in exchange for peace. And this also brings me back to the earlier questions question that we were raising, which is, you know, people are really not willing to uh, make many concessions anymore because they just feel conflict is over. And why should we uh, hand in all these things to, to guerrillas who only uh, have, have contributed to the destruction of the country? That's not my opinion, that's people's opinions, uh, opinion on the streets many times. So, 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 specific answer to your question is there are very few economic consequences of the agreement for the private sector which 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 I which I would uh, describe as formal enterprises operating in large urban areas many of whom have been able to develop uh, very strong networks at an international level and therefore just really uh, are pretty much shielded from many of the violent uh, uh, actions happening in the country, where the agreement does have a very strong economic consequence and, and, and we're still expecting that it consolidates, is in these rural areas where the state has been historically weak, uh, the, the, where, where we have been historically underdeveloped, where there's no uh, uh, capacity to, 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 to develop innovative solutions in terms of technology or industry, where this is really uh, uh, basically a place where people still run away from, both for violent reasons as well as for reasons of, of lack of opportunity. Uh, and in, those, in some of those areas, there have been projects called so-called territorial peace projects, whereby the state has pumped resources into those areas, has tried to provide incentives to the private sector to go there and develop their um, um, their economic activities there just so as to provide opportunity for local populations and just stem the tide of ongoing urbanization. Uh, that is still to be seen. We don't know if this, if this promise will, will, will be kept, but that would be one of the most important, I would say, economic consequences if the peace agreement holds. Uh, as, as I said, not at the national level, not in huge scale, but for those specific regions which are still uh, um, poorer, uh, less developed uh, uh, than the rest of the country. 
we're quickly approaching the end of our time. Sorry. But we have a tradition here at Econopolitics of asking our guests to recommend a special place, be it a bar, a cafe, a restaurant, bookstore, etc. Some place worthwhile in the region in or elsewhere in Latin America. Um, we eventually hope to compile a list of recommendations for our members who often travel to the region for research or pleasure. So, Angelica Redberg, what do you recommend, where and why? So, I, um, I, would, recommend, I would recommend three uh, stops not to miss when visiting Bogota. I know Bogota is a city that, that um, uh, exerts both fascination and also causes deep anger among people, uh, not, not in the pandemic, but still, but, 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 but usually we have awful traffic jams, uh, uh, pollution is, 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 is awful, uh, etc. There's all sorts of problems which I, as a, as a Bogota-born person, will acknowledge. However, I feel that throughout the years, we've also come to find some of this, some of the more attractive sites here. For instance, we have beautiful mountains surrounding the city, uh, a very nice breeze that, uh, that, that will actually flow through my office at this moment while we speak. Um, then, and, and, and then in addition to that, I think it has three areas that I've, I, would, I would certainly suggest that a visitor uh, should go to. First of all, um, on pretty much every street in Bogota, you'll find small bakeries. Uh, where they will sell you very cheap, very white <laughs> bread as well. It's not the kind of whole grain stuff that you'll find elsewhere. This is something that a typical Bogotano will not eat light. They will eat, you know, white bread in all sorts of forms and shapes. Uh, and this is always a nice place where you can have a very, you know, a cup of coffee with your piece of bread and just perhaps watch the news, uh, listen to neighborhood uh, chatter. Uh, and many of them nowadays have Wi-Fi, which I know is a precious resource for us researchers. And, and so, so I've seen an increase of, of use of these little bakeries which are pretty much everywhere across the city by researchers. So then in addition to that, there is a very nice, uh, and, and, and I know this sounds strange because this is Bogota and it's not, it's not, it's not a Italian colony or whatsoever, but I would say one of the best uh, Italian restaurants in the world, and I know this is an awful exaggeration, but I just love going there, which is called Andante. Andante is a place where you can have very good pasta and very nice pizza and very nice sandwich, also great Wi-Fi, also nice bakery, also very nice desserts. Uh, and then finally, uh, and where you have two, we have two, uh, there are two places, one, one close to, uh, one in the neighborhood where Fabricio used to live and where I currently live, um, and then also one in the old part of town, which is La Candelaria, which is also turned into a very nice uh, neighborhood, um, especially by day. It, it's sort of, it's sort of, it's sort of a Jekyll and Hyde story because at night the thing turns around, but during the day, it's a beautiful place to go to and, for instance, visit the Andante version of La Candelaria. And then finally, I would strongly suggest you visit Libreria Lerner. Uh, it is a locally owned bookstore where you can pretty much find anything, and if they don't have it, they will get it for you. Uh, old stuff, um, you know, kept in archives, uh, books that are published by not so very commercial publishers. Uh, it's very, it's, it's really a gem in the world of bookstores. Uh, and having gone to many as, as a typical academic, I would still think that this is one of the best bookstores uh, that you can access to. You should definitely visit if you come to Bogota. Let me subvert the end of the show and add myself two suggestions, <laughs> Alika. The first is Asimos, close to 
to the Torres del Parque. It's a very good bakery. And the second, the, uh, the bookstore, Angelica mentioned, there's another one, in, if I'm not wrong, in Chapinero, Tornamesa, True. which is a, a fantastic it is. bookstore as well. Angelica, it's been fantastic to talk to you today. Thanks a lot. It's a very clear panel of what's happening in Colombia, the peace process, and all the, the nuances and details we could have. Thanks a lot. Um, Joe, thanks a lot for co-hosting the show with me. Thank you, Angelica. I invite you and all our listeners to join us again next week for another episode of Econopolitics. Please spread the word to friends and colleagues. Until next week, stay well and stay safe. Bye. Thank you so much for the invitation and stay safe. Thank you so much.